Hi, I'm Julie. And I'm Liz. We are business owners turned podcasters. This show gives you the permission and tools to create your courageous second act. We call this the afterglow. Welcome to the afterglow. On today's show, we are excited to introduce you to Paulette Sr. Paulette has devoted her life and career to breaking down systemic barriers and building up diverse women and girls. Her personal experience immigrating to Canada from Jamaica as a young girl ignited her interest in social justice and helped make her the dynamic, grounded leader she is today. Paulette's career began in social services in some of Toronto's most underserved neighborhoods. She witnessed the need for systemic change and learned the power of putting the voices of women and equity-seeking communities first. She became known for her excellence in shelter, employment, and housing service provision, as well as for her intersectional approach to advocacy. She has earned numerous awards and has become one of the most respected women leaders in Canada. In 2016, Paulette joined the Canadian Women's Foundation as president and CEO after a decade serving as CEO of the YWCA Canada. She is a sought-after thought leader on numerous issues, including gender equity and gender-based violence, women's poverty and the wage gap, girls' empowerment, and leadership. Her focus at the foundation is to bolster an inclusive national movement for all women, girls, and communities across Canada. Welcome, Paulette. We are honored to have you. Oh, I am very honored to be here. Thank you. Paulette, we can't wait to dig in to your bio and your history. We'd love to start right at the beginning, mm-hmm. if that's okay with you. And so going back to when you were about 11 years old and you immigrated to Canada, your grandmother had just passed and you, you came to Canada. Can you tell us a bit about that experience? What was that like for you? That's really going way back. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I came here. I was the last one out of a... Uh, family of six children to arrive in Canada. So that sort of completed the um, immigration process for my family. Um, And it was uh, quite an experience. I was excited to to join my family because I had missed that. And I had lived with my grandmother until my parents were ready to to take me. Um, And I love my grandmother, but she passed. And so uh, you know, coming here for me was uh, clearly a new beginning. But also, I think I was coming to a place that I felt that I was going to be loved and accepted and cherished and all of that, you know. Um, so that was exciting for me. Um, it was also um, uh, an interesting experience because I ended up, uh, you know, uh, going back to school and uh, my parents didn't delay. They sent me right to summer school because I arrived in June. Mm-hmm. And so they, I had the experience of going to summer school and that was interesting. I clearly was um, not uh, embraced by the school system to begin with. Um, you know, I had a very strong uh, Jamaican accent, uh, which I now call myself uh, uh, bilingual because I can get right into my dialect and I can also uh, be quite the Canadian, you know? So, but back then, you know, I was very much new and really trying to find my footing, not just in terms of my family and my community, but also 
with, uh, with the school and the large environment. And yeah, so I came from a rural town and then I ended up in a very big city. Uh, very, very different uh, life uh, that I was about to embark on. And, and just really trying to understand what is this new world that I had come to. Uh, you know, in Jamaica, you know, you're surrounded by people of your culture. And would you say that when you came, um, obviously, um, I heard you mention that you moved into sort of the Witchwood and St. Clair neighborhood, which was at the time predominantly white, but more immigrants were coming in. Yeah. And so did you feel different or othered at all in that environment? I, I felt both um, because of, of what you said, first of all, with my family, um, but also I was discovering new friends that were having the same sort of immigrant experience that I was, and not just from uh, the Caribbean, uh, not just Black, but Portuguese and Italian, right? So, so that was the kind of neighborhood I was growing up in. My neighbors across the street were Greeks, the one ones uh, on, on our right, they were Italian. Uh, the ones uh, next to me on the other side were just typical Canadians, white Canadians, you know, so it was a very mixed experience. I used to babysit for a couple of neighbors on the street. My, my youngest sibling, uh, her babysitter was Italian, you know, so it was that kind of a community, my, my original stomping grounds in Canada. Yeah, I, I still have loving endearing feelings of that community um, because it was my home. So when you came at 11, age 11, you were streamed into the lower stream here in Canada, which is an experience not uncommon for black students. Still today, about 39% of black students are streamed into applied compared to only 16% of white students. Mm -hmm. So you were streamed into that lower stream. And from what we heard, that didn't quite resonate with your perceptions of yourself. Can mm -hmm. you tell us a bit more about that experience? Well, it, it was confusing. Um, it was confusing because I had come from uh, being a pretty good student. I, I, I don't think I ever did grade five. I skipped grade five, went to grade six. You know, all the teachers that, that I had around me either looked like me or were also parents of my grandmother. You know, so there wasn't a lot of room to be a bad student. <laughs> so I was, I was, I was uh, advancing quite well academically. And then I had a bit of a break uh, after grade six with my grandmother's passing, didn't, probably didn't go to school in a formal way, probably for about six months. And then I came here um, and then went to, went to summer school, right? So um, my grade six teacher was a very, she was lovely in some ways, but in other ways, I just didn't understand um, because she had structured the classroom in a way such that the brightest were at the front of the class and the not so bright ones were at the back of the class. Um, that was quite off-putting for me. Um, I had moments of where I did well and moments that I didn't do well. Um, and I, in retrospect, um, I think what I realized was that I just couldn't figure out what was going on. I was confused. I, I didn't understand because I came from you know, having teachers really be behind me and supporting me to teachers who just um, were just there to teach. And, and, and that was the end of that, not nurturing, not understanding, 
and this this idea of um, not expecting anything, nothing great, mm. right? And you know, as parents, if you're parents, you you want to have that kind of rapport with your with your teachers, uh, with the teachers of your kids. You want to uh, make sure that they have the highest expectations of your kids. And I went through the opposite from going from one environment where the expectations are really high to one where it wasn't. And so I had moments where I, and should put all the test scores up on in the classroom for everyone to see how you did, mm. right? So I'm not quite sure that was a good, that, <laughs> um, you know, I, I had uh, one point I'd be moving up into the, into towards the front. The other point I'd be moving back um, scores that were excellent, some that were terrible. You know, so it wasn't a very positive experience. And from there, she decided I should go to a special grade seven class at Winona. And those special classes happened not in the main building, but in the portables, mm -hmm. right? So once you're in the portable, everyone knew that you weren't so bright and it was mm -hmm. de definitely a stigma. Um, and and the, the, the curriculum for that particular class was pretty shabby. Um, the, the, woman, the, the, the woman who taught us, uh, an, an amazing old British woman who loved all her students um, and cherished us, uh, she wondered why myself and my other Black friend that came from the same grade six class ended up in her class. Mm. Because we, we, were, we were doing well. Um, we couldn't do any better because the curriculum was basic. Like it was, it was grade one or grade two. Um, and in that, in that class, it was primarily uh, about three or four black students, Portuguese and Italian. Yeah. No one yeah. likes that experience of yeah. walking to the portable in the middle of winter. It's yeah. such a horrible experience. But that grade seven teacher, I believe she, she recognized talent and ability in you. And, yeah. and, and streamed you back to the more advanced level. Is that right? Uh, my friend Suzette and I were put back in the regular stream because she said we didn't belong there. So many yeah. kids get this same experience or have the same experience that you had, only they don't have a particular teacher or somebody who sees that in them and then gets that experience of being put back into the mainstream and then they get lost. Mm -hmm. I mean, can you speak to that at all about, about the experience of that for others who get lost in the system? Well, you know, it is, it, is, it is complex on some levels, but I think it's also rooted in uh, thoughts and ideas and misconceptions about who we are. And when I think of myself as a parent who put a, a Black son through the school system, who is now a part of that system because he's a teacher, um, I, I, I reflect and I think of all the things that I had to do as a parent, as a woman who is educated, who has some resources, uh, and all the things I had to go through to make sure my son could make it. And then I think of all the parents who didn't have that, you know? And I think no matter what your background are as a parent, you just are an automatic advocate for your child. And so when, when the labeling begins in grade one or even before that senior kindergarten, it's a lot of it has to do with how you respond to that, right? How, how do you respond to that? So, so for example, um, my, my son, uh, his teachers all thought he was cute and whatever, but there's a point at which he started, he stopped being cute and started 
to um, be thought of as threatening or misbehaving and all that kind of stuff. And so the response that, that, uh, that we take as parents to that kind of labeling of our kids, it matters. And the response of the school to labeling a child or when you bring forward a complaint around how your child is being treated, they matter. Mm. Because it forms the basis for which a child can or cannot succeed. Because, because a, a child is not able to fight those battles for themselves. So we are relegated to do that. And, and so um, the, the, what's happening to a lot of our kids is that if they don't have, their parents are not equipped with the right uh, approach and resources and, and uh, don't have the advocacy skills to actually know how to advocate in a way that uh, doesn't put their child at risk, then, then that's a problem. And, and if that child internalizes not just what society thinks of that child, but also um, uh, the messages that they're getting from the teacher and from multiple teachers or the media, uh, then that becomes uh, a problem uh, that has multiple facets to it and internalized oppression and internalized misconceptions and internalized racism uh, are all matters that we have to deal with. And imagine a child trying to uh, pull that apart or even a parent who doesn't have the support and the resources or even in the understanding because my parents didn't go to school in Canada, <laughs> right? And when, when a teacher tells you that your child is not going to go in a special class, you probably think that's a good thing. You don't realize that that, that special is not so special. Mm -hmm. and, and therefore, um, you know, the kids end up, I think, in, in this uh, uh, vicious cycle um, that carries with them, that is then recorded in their OSRs, their Ontario student record, and can be read from one school to another because a lot of parents end up taking their kids out of a school just because they can't, can't fight anymore. They bring them to another school. And then that then, uh, that record follows them. Mm -hmm. And so uh, one of the things that I did as I started to work in the sector and work in a lot of these communities is inform parents, inform friends, inform families about the OSR and, and, you know, at least once a year taking a look, going in the school, asking to see that OSR, going through it, questioning what are these things, what does it mean, why is it there? You know, so all of that matters because I realize that is, that is one of the systemic tools of oppression that's used that, that tracks you for life all throughout your education. You speak about the knowledge that uh, parents you know, immigrant or parents of color need to have about the school system to help advocate for their children. But even before that, even before the resources and the tools, it seems like there's an inner belief and a determination not to let oppression live inside you. Um, and so that really sticks out in you. It's, it's what I see anyways, this part of you that stands up for you as that little girl that was told, you know, you belong in the lower level and that little girl who said, this does not fit with how I see myself. Mm -hmm. And then that parent who did the same thing for her child, right? Mm -hmm. So that inner belief that you are not what society tells you, where does that come from? 
Oh, Liz, you're good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I reflect on that sometimes and I think about it because I refuse to believe the lies about who folks say that I'm supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, and I think that's what carries me to this day. You know, your perceptions of me are not who I am and I determine who that is. And I help my son figure out who he is for himself, you know, and, and that's, that's an important piece. And I think it came from my grandmother, really, mm -hmm. uh, a woman who taught me to read, who didn't know how to read herself, right. But insisted that I knew and insisted that I uh, uh, spent my time reading and learning. Um, and I used to hate rainy days. Because rainy days is when I had to stay in and read all my books and I couldn't go out and play. But that was just how things were with her. And that was what she insisted on. And I hated it. I, I think I would cry sometimes. Uh, one, because I was, I was the only child around. And so I'm kind of stuck with my grandmother in the house. But also because um, I didn't know what she was instilling, you know. And uh, all, all of that really um, comes up in me now. Uh, I noticed it came up for me as my son himself started to go to school and, and what I would insist on for him. And, uh, you know, her methods and mine had to be a little different because it's different times, you know, and I found a way to um, help my son in a way that was more suited to who he was um, so that he wouldn't end up in tears. <laughs> right but um uh but you know it's it's all about being able to um help folks realize what they're capable of and what i'm capable of is in, is even more than i know mm -hmm. you know i believe that um i i am never truly fully um uh doing all that i'm capable of doing so my, what I'm capable of is endless. I believe that for everyone, right? I believe that for everyone. So, so that, that's what matters to me. I believe in, the, in, in our deep humanity and love for each other. And what gets in the way is all the stuff that we put out that is not who we are as human beings. It gets in the way. And when we're able to move a lot of that aside, then who we are can actually come out in a much stronger, human, loving way, mm. right? That's my dream world. That's a beautiful world. Mm -hmm. I think that it's actually pretty amazing because from the studies, we know that girls ages nine to 12, I mean, that is when they're at their most vulnerable time and their self-esteem diminishes dramatically. And this was the time when you were moving here, when you were going through all of this, and yet here you are with this um, just uh, you know, real agency for yourself and self-assuredness that um, and committedness to all of this work, which I think is incredible because that stuff can really take you down, right? And you could have gone in a different direction. Mm -hmm. I read um, an article that you wrote with a report from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives that says, education reform based on research and evidence that centers and amplifies the experiences, voices, and perspectives of black girl children and youth and employs an intersecting anti-racist, anti-oppressive lens is critical. 
And so you have mentioned this, that girls in particular need to be considered in a new education plan, but your focus is really girl-centered. Why is this? Why not? The, the work that I have done my entire career has always been around the empowerment of folks to realize their own true potential. Um, so families, young people, girls, and I am, I am a feminist. <laughs> right? I'm a feminist and I believe that until we're able to truly have uh, the kind of world where women and folks who identify as women are equally valued and, and accepted and can uh, really break down those barriers so that we can actually flourish the way we're meant to flourish, uh, we won't be able to thrive as a society and as a world. How, how is it possible? In what, in what mindset do we, have we come to accept that women don't belong in certain spaces in society? Like, like who created that? And I do believe that was created. Just like it was created for certain folks of particular racial backgrounds not to be able to advance and, and experience true equality, it's the same when it comes to gender. Right? The society we live in is the one that's been created and we just live in it and think that's the way things are. And, and I rebuff that. Um, I, I don't think that's it. I think we have an opportunity to create a different world um, and, and actually be intentional about it. Mm -hmm. So, so that's, that's what I'm looking forward to is, is, is having girls not be exposed to those messages that all they are uh, is, is about the fact that they can have babies and uh you know they can serve men and their uh their sexual objects um you know th th those are very damaging messages and they're not as good as the boys and uh because of their gender it's 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 past time that we throw that stereotype off and really think about how are we raising our boys and our girls in a way that reinforces that as opposed to uh, uh, breaks it down entirely. One of the key pillars of the Canadian Women's Foundation is to support girls. And through the Girls Fund specifically, I believe the, the focus of the, of the foundation is to reduce the triple whammy that occurs in adolescence. So the high risk of sexual assault, mm -hmm. poor mental health, and a toxic sexualized culture. And Julie and I both have teen daughters and we see them on TikTok. We see what happens there. That stuff is not going away. Mm -hmm. um, but we'd love to hear it from your perspective, um, what you do through the Canadian Women's Foundation and how we can create change. I, I love the work that I do um, and what the foundation stands for. We have four pillars, right? So the four pillars are women's economic development, um, uh, ending gender-based violence, um, women's leadership and empowering girls, right? And so our girls fund is about that last pillar, empowering girls. And we do that because we fully believe that uh, what happens to us at that critical time in our lives, you know, preteen to early, early to mid-teens, uh, that's when we, we start believing a lot of the stuff that we're hearing that's when our self-esteem breaks down. That's when 
we we start to develop into our into our bodies, mm-hmm. and and the messages about who we are become so predominant. You know, whether it's through music videos or whether it's uh, you know the messages or the the toxic environments that exist in schools or on school playgrounds. You know, I remember when I was at the YWCA, uh, YWCA Montreal, YFM did uh, uh, a video in partnership with the um, with another organization. I can't recall who they are now, um, and it was about the hypersexualization of girls. You know, and working and as young as the lower grades, you know, what was happening on the school yards and all the things that the boys were asking the girls to do. And that became schoolyard talk. So a real shift from when some of us were younger and, and, and what to what's happening now. And then you look at the, the videos from whether it be the 90s up to now and what, you know, the, the, the way that women's bodies are shown some of these, some of these videos are just leave me wanting to, like I just get so angry, you know, because men are fully clothed while women are scantily clothed, you know, and and the the messages that 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 are being sent to girls in terms of what they need to look like, who they need to be in order to get attention, right, in order to move forward, in order to get ahead. That's, that's what girls are consuming and boys are consuming that too, mm-hmm. right? So boys are expecting the girls to do that and to be that. And girls are thinking that's who they need to be. So you have girls who, and boys who are performing, you know, pretty much at the same level by the time they get to grade, you know, uh, grade three, grade four, and then all of a sudden, girls, the, the self-esteem drops to 33%. 33%. So the majority of girls are walking around thinking they're not capable of doing math. They're not capable of doing science. <laughs> when, in fact, what a lot of them are, 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 are believing that in terms of the message is that they shouldn't show their smartness. They shouldn't show their intelligence. They should hide it because that's not part of the image of being what a girl is being purported to be. So yeah, that, that's what it is. So we fund programs that are working with young people, no matter what gender they are, to actually um, uh, uh, talk about what it's like mm-hmm. to be who they are, you know, and to help them to think critically about those messages to really understand what a what is a healthy relationship? What are the signs of a healthy relationship? Whether it's with your parents or an intimate person, you know, their friends, it doesn't matter. What what is a healthy relationship? And and what are the signs of unhealthy relationships? Mm, this right? is so aligned so, with with a program that we created at our yoga studio called Glow Girls. And mm-hmm. I love that you're so like fact-based, like 33%, because this is what drove us to recognize the need for this kind of a program in our community, you know, all over the world, obviously for girls between those ages. And so we did just that and created this empowerment program, which is, you know, 
allowing girls to be who they are, knowing them that there's a sense of value in the things that they value, that the world isn't about how you look and, you know, body image isn't, isn't all of it. Um, teaching them gratitude and service for others and that kind of thing. And so we're kind of local, we're grassroots, we're in our neighborhood, right? And, and so how can we um, do what you're doing and support our girls in our local neighborhood? Is, is there something that, um, you know, tools or skills or other programs that we could be offering to our girls locally? Absolutely. And I think it's about responding to local needs. So, you know, you think of, of girls in urban areas or think of girls in rural and remote communities. That matters too. And sometimes, sometimes those who are living in rural communities, they don't get an opportunity to really find spaces and places to express who they are. And so I think no matter where you are um, across our immense country, it's really about um, um, allowing girls to talk about and to express what it is that they need to have. What, you know, what, what is it that they would like to accomplish? I, I, when I think of Indigenous girls, for example, you know, who are living in communities where it's hard to get fresh water, it's hard to have a safe space to be, it's, you know, um, where there, there are massive issues that they're contending with, where when they have to leave their communities to go to high school, for example. I mean, I can't even imagine at that age where they have to leave their communities in order to access quality education, right? So I think we need to think about, um, try, try and go back to that space for ourselves and think about that and then have these conversations with girls, allowing them to say what's there for them and then the kind of initiatives that we create in response at the grassroots level will reflect that. So let's not go in with preconceived ideas because, you, you know, we are different. The times you're living in, we didn't live them, right? So what would have worked for me back then is not going to probably work for them now, right? So allow them the space to, to do that, to create. There's something, there's a statement that that you know, a lot of organizations are really thinking about you know, how to make that come alive within their mission and vision. Nothing about us without us, right? So if, if that is truly true, then how can you make sure that whatever initiatives or programs we come up with, that girls are intricately involved in creating them? One know? of the other pillars is to um, increase women in leadership roles. And uh, in one of your recent blog posts, you, um, you listed the six barriers to women's leadership, socialization, media representation, gender bias, lack of role models, women don't see themselves as leaders, the motherhood penalty. And Julie and I were talking about just how exhausting that is. And so we have a couple of questions for you. One is, how can we support women today to achieve those leadership roles, given all these barriers? And how do you keep motivated in the face of all these barriers, which I'm sure you're also facing yourself. I, I, at the King Women's Foundation, we, we really take the role of women's leadership very seriously. Um, it's, it's how we work, for example. Uh, it must be reflected in how we work. Um, and and uh, it's not to say we're perfect as, a, as, as, a, as an organization, 
but it's important that as I go out there saying what needs to happen, what should happen, that uh, I can actually see that being lived in my organization, right? Because these days, especially these days, organizations are being challenged left, right, and center in terms of preaching something externally and not being able to live that internally. We're, we're seeing that all over the place. I don't have to mention them, right? So, um, so it's important to me that we're doing that. We're providing opportunities for women to lead in their own lives, uh, for women to lead in their own portfolios. What are they? We, we've, we've hired folks who come with particular skills and the way that I work with my colleagues and with the staff at the foundation is that I have an expectation that they will do their work, right? That they will deliver their work, that they are, they come with a passion and commitment to the work. So that's really important to me. And I think in terms of women's leadership, it's, uh, that's a part of that, right? It's, it's a part of um, uh, uh, believing that we are capable of no matter what space we're in, of actually um, uh, getting things done. You know, so whether we're in the finance sector, whether we're in the political space, whether we're in the not-for-profit uh, space, that in all of those spaces, we come equipped with the leadership skills as well as the intelligence to get the work done. And what we will need sometimes is some exposure, to uh, different leaders, uh, to mentorship opportunities, to sponsorship opportunities, making sure we're keeping the doors open for others to come behind us. You know, all of, all of these strategies are important because the days of being the only one, to me, need to be gone. They, those days need to be eliminated. And what we need is a threshold of different women with varying identities and backgrounds to be leading. Um, what, we, what we've inherited over the past few years is that clearly we're seeing advancement in women's leadership, but it's only one type of woman. It's primarily white women, right? And so that's not the future that I imagine when I think about women. I'm thinking of all women across the spectrum of folks who identify as such. Right? And so we need to see women from all backgrounds occupying all kinds of spaces um, and, and that we are putting in place strategies to support that. One of the things that we did uh, a few years ago was we started a Women's Leadership Institute uh, that would support women's leadership within the not-for-profit space. Um, and we looked for leaders who were emerging or mid-level and had desires to become leaders of organizations. And so we, we had uh, uh, three cohorts of leaders go through a leadership training program. And, and today I can point to you, some of those leaders have either changed positions, are leading the organizations that we're in, are taken on, have taken on incredible uh, uh, initiatives, um, and, and leading in different spaces. So even coming from the uh, charitable space to leading in the public space, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, or even starting their own organizations. And we, we want to in, interject that into every initiative we do. So whether it's in the area of economic development, supporting women entrepreneurs to lead, uh, to, to lead in developing their own businesses, that's also important to us. 
So, so that's the approach we take and that uh, is reflected in who we are as, as an organization as well. One of the things we are focused on on our show is about um, women sort of in their second act or later on in life. And, you know, we've talked about the young girls and how to sort of educate them and expose them to different messaging. But a lot of us are already cooked, like we're already baked. We had these messages our whole life and here we are, we're kind of later on in our life and and wondering like what's next and how we can become still, right? How we can at our age um, become a leader or take on these roles because we think maybe that time has passed. So, so I'm not sure if in your experience you have, um, identified that or seen that you know women later on in life wanting to to become leaders how do you approach that what can you say to women out there right now who are like you know this part of my life has passed i'm ready for something new how can they embrace or kind of um follow that passion mm -hmm. that's a really good question um and i when i think of i think of my my circle of friends and and their lives and what they're thinking about at this stage. So I have a friend who uh, has worked in HR for all her career. And she said, you know what? I want to go back to school. So she's completing her PhD this year, right? Yeah. Um, which, which I just think is amazing. Yeah. I have another friend who, la who the last uh, municipal election decided she was going to run for school trustee, right? Um, to express her, 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 her care and love for her community and her passion for equitable education in that way. Um, so, so I'm seeing uh, all kinds of folks thinking about what their next steps are. You know, could, could be a teacher, for example, who is thinking, okay, so maybe there's something else I can do now that I'm at this stage of my life, you know, uh, in terms of supporting uh, education a different way, right? or to serve on boards. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm approached quite a bit by uh, women who have amassed uh, a, a certain level of expertise uh, over their career um, who want to give back. And so they want to serve and lead in that way. So I think all of, all of that uh, matters. Um, and, uh, and, and, and we're seeing more and more of that because I, I'm in that age group as well. <laughs> I'm in that age group where I'm thinking, okay, so, you know, I'm a certain age now and I need to think about what's next for me in terms of, uh, dare I say the R word, uh, and what that means in, in this new, um, new space and time that we're in, because I can't see myself ever not doing something meaningful and passionate in my life. Right. So what, what does that look like for me, uh, as retirement approaches at some point? Right. So, so that's what I'm seeing is that uh, women are, are taking up more of that space and they have grown into their own. And it's so nice to see because we care so much less about the crap <laughs> right? that's been put upon us that we carried for such a long time. And a lot of us are just saying, I'm putting that down and, uh, and, and the freedom that's expressed at that at that stage where they have no more the kids are grown if they had any uh you know their their expertise is unquestionable they have achieved certain things including wealth right some have achieved wealth or and resources that they can utilize um and and make decisions on some of them their partners have passed 
And, and so they're, you know, the decisions that some of these women are making because a lot of wealth has been transferred to them is also going to be having a significant impact in terms of where some of those dollars are going to go. Right? So yeah, it's a good thing. <laughs> I love, I love hearing those stories because I think our world today really needs all hands on deck, you know, and even as we're aging, you know, Julie and I were in our forties and, you know, and as people in their fifties, sixties, they have so much value and wisdom and knowledge. And, you know, I love the idea of them staying involved and contributing and, you know, staying passionate and helping this world as much as possible for Absolutely. the children to come. So, yeah. so you mentioned yourself that you, you know, the R word, but also having so much to give. Mm -hmm. um, one of the questions we like to ask our guests is what is your afterglow and afterglow it happens to be the name of our yoga studio but it's also the word we use to to describe you know your future vision for the next 30 40 years so what is your afterglow for yourself i i just love that you have this long view of 30 40 50 years and then i was thinking to myself really so <laughs> oh yeah really <laughs> So what do I have in mind for myself? Um, I, you know, I've, I, I, as, as you start out our interview or conversation today, I, I am from Jamaica. And because I came at the age I did, my, my heart hearkens a lot for Jamaica. So I see myself uh, spending some of my time there and not just spending my time, but investing my time and expertise there. Um, and another spaces in the world, right? So that could be Africa, that could be North America, that could be across the Caribbean. So I can see that I can have a role to play and contribute there. So, so that I'm not just sort of retiring and sitting down and on the beach, although there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but I am, I am contributing to my community wherever I am. Uh, so I see that. Um, I, I, you know, I can see that I can find a way to really express myself. I uh, don't tell my son, but I expect at some point I'll become a grandmother. Um, so so I'd, I'd love to explore that role and, and enjoy it without the accountability and responsibility of raising children. Um, and, and yeah, and, and I have a group of friends that I have traveled this path with for the past three decades or so, and, and we have thoughts and ideas about what we can do together mm. as a group of women, feisty women who have been through so much together and celebrate each other, uh, but also um, push each other. So looking at what it is that we could do together, uh, that excites me too. Wow, mm. that's a lot, amazing. I love yeah. all of that. I, it's, it's so inspiring because it's a continuation of what you're already doing in essence of, of continuing to serve through your experience and expertise. And so we can't not mention the awards that you've uh, garnered over the you know, three decades or however long it's been in your career. Um, you've won the African Canadian Achievement Award, the Afro Global Leadership Award, the Black Women Civic Engagement Award, the Black Business and Professional Association's Harry Jerome Trailblazer Award, and the Microskills Margot Franson Leadership Award, among many. You're setting the bar pretty high here. You have really, I mean, achieved a lot. And most of these awards seem to be to, related to race. So uh, it's actually really good to know that these exist because I don't think that a lot of people know that they exist. And so what do these awards 
What do they represent or mean to you? Mm. Well, when you, when you have a community um, that has experienced uh, exclusion um, for so long and, uh, and knowing that greatness exists within it, um, I think it's really important that we take the time to recognize each other. So we know, and most Canadians should know of the achievements of Harry Jerome. You know, most Canadians should know that. And if we don't, we need to research it. Um, most Canadians should know that uh, despite popular belief that we are a very um, caring community when it comes to appreciating each other and recognizing each other and, and that we uh, provide scholarships for each other through various organizations and initiatives. So uh, it's the way we uplift each other. And so when I get uh, recognition through one of these awards, it matters so much more to my heart. Um, and it means a lot to my community. It means a lot. It means, it means, it, it reinforces and pushes back on the belief system that we're not capable. Mm. Pushes back on that. And it recognizes that we're all doing well um, and, and that some of us are doing really well. And it holds up in a spotlight for others to see and themselves do well. That's the purpose of it. And so I think a lot of times it's, it's less about the recipients and more about the purpose of demonstrating to others that this is indeed possible for themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Those positive stories are, are so important. The, you know, the accomplishments, elevating those and celebrating those. Mm -hmm. One of the other questions we like to ask our guests is, what would you say to your 15 year old self? And, and I'm thinking about, you know, you can kind of estimate on the age, but I'm thinking of you coming over at age 11, 12, those early years, mm -hmm. looking back on that period, what would you say to yourself? When I think of when I was around that age, um, you know, I was still, I was still being settled, you know, um, in many different ways as a, still as a new immigrant, still as, uh, trying to find my way as a teenager, as a girl, figuring things out. I'm, I'm now into a full family structure with my parents and my siblings. Um, I was in high school. And when I think about it, the impact of the immigration process and the impact of um, uh, being streamed was still very much resonating with me. My self-esteem was not in the best of place at that age, to be, to be quite frank. And so I think what I would say is that uh, it's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. More than okay. <laughs> yeah. You, you have, um, on the same lines of that, you have written that Black and Indigenous women are and need to be resilient. Mm -hmm. And you're demonstrating your resilience through that story. Mm -hmm. But what, what does resilience mean to you? Um, I see it in two different ways, resilience. And I love the word. Sometimes uh, when we go through tough times as a people, as a person, um, resil resilience to me is about your ability to get up and move on. 
that's what it is. It's it's about the fact that things come at us, we get knocked down, we get pushed over, we get stepped over, and we get back up and we get right back on it. Right. Um, so for me, that's really important as individuals, no matter what we look like or gender, that that's that's humanity and our strength as human beings is is to be able to do that. The way society is structured, it means that some of us have to be constantly resilient. Right. And there's a cost to that constant resilience. Right? There's a structured impact of that ongoing resilience. And yet, we remain resilient in the face of it. Right? And so, um, while it's really important that, that we foster resilience because it's what keeps us going, there's some of us who have to be much more resilient than others. And, and there's a cost to it that mm -hmm. uh, is often not acknowledged or even talked about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an emotional, as well as I'm sure physical in some area, you know, at some point it'd be interesting to dive into the research around mm -hmm. how physically that might manifest, but for sure yeah. an extra, an extra cost there. Yeah. Is there anything else you would like to say just as we wrap up any other last words of wisdom for our listeners? Well, I think I can say thank you for the journey <laughs> of taking me back to my, to my childhood. Um, it's it's uh, in retrospect and it's, it's been, uh, I'm inspired by it actually. And it, 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 uh, it pushes me on uh, and it, it reminds me that it's been a worthwhile journey. Oh, absolutely. Thank you, Paulette. Absolutely. You've given so much. Julie and I are equally inspired by you and your work. So thank, thank you. you. Yes. Yeah, so thank you for joining us today. Where can we find you? PSenior at CanadianWoman.org, uh, at PSenior1 on Twitter. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a regular user of Twitter, much more than the other um, social media platforms. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you. And thank you for inspiring us with all of your wisdom today. We really appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Take care. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening in. Be sure to follow us on social media at the Afterglow Podcast Official and take a minute to leave us a rating or review on Apple, Spotify, and Google. Lift a sister up and share the Afterglow with others who are seeking their courageous second act.